Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. What's happening? Thanks for joining me for this episode of In The Shift. Uh, I was just thinking this week is this is the 20th episode of In The Shift, which is kind of cool. And, you know, when I started out the podcast, I I really didn't know whether it was going to be a thing, you know, were people going to tune in and listen. I kind of felt like it was something I needed to do and should do and could do. Um, But you never really know what's going to happen with something like this. And uh, and I sit here and I record in this little study at the end of the house and I'm usually just by myself. And then it gets sent out into the world and then I hear back, uh, amazingly, from all of these wonderful and interesting people in New Zealand and Australia and all over the place in North America and Europe and elsewhere. People getting in touch about what I'm saying and talking about and about what's going on for them and about their journey and life and faith and spirituality and maybe some of the questions that are coming up for people just in their journey of of life or maybe in relation to particular things I'm talking about on the podcast, all sorts of stuff. And it's really awesome. And and the cool thing, I guess, about a podcast is that people just drop into the conversation at different points. And so even though my first episode was eight or nine months ago now, people are still starting there and joining in and getting in touch. And then other people have just jumped in from where we're up to. And then quite a few people seem to find their way into the podcast through the Hell series as a starting point. So um, that was obviously a a little trigger topic for a few people. Some people have uh, listened accidentally because they were looking for the Australian Michael Frost and found me instead. So uh, welcome to you and uh, apparently kept listening because they liked it. So that's nice. Uh, Whoever you are, Thanks for listening in. It's really cool to have this community of listeners building and growing over time, and I don't really take that for granted at all. Uh, At some stage in the future, I wonder if I should do an episode that's just based on the different questions that people have been sending in, so maybe I'll think about doing that at some point soon. In the meantime, I'm continuing the In the Flesh series, which we started a few episodes ago, and I want to continue talking about the complicated relationship with the body that we find, in particular within the Western Christian tradition, perhaps in the West more generally. And the thing I want to hone in on today is to ask the question, what is a human being? Now this might sound like a weird thing to ask. I don't know if you ever lie on your bed at night just staring at the ceiling thinking, but what am I? It's a strange question, perhaps. Maybe the answer seems obvious to you, but there are a wide variety of responses to this question, especially from within religious traditions, but also beyond the religious traditions. So, What I want to do in this episode is to take a particular structure that's been quite popular within Christian circles um, in relating to what a human being is and talk about what it's trying to do and then the problems that we run into with it. uh, And what I'd like to do is pose what I think is a more helpful way of thinking about our humanness that I also happen to think is much more in tune with the biblical text as well as modern scientific insights. So this is episode 20 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. The title of today's episode is Bodies, Consciousness, and Why You Don't Have a Spirit Man. And as I said in the intro, I wanted to talk about what a human is. And it's really a question that human beings have been asking for thousands of years. Are we just a mass of blood and bones and muscles and skin? Do we have a soul or a spirit? Is there something more going on here? What does it mean to be a human being? And it's a question considered by the great philosophers, by theologians, but also by poets, artists and scientists and psychologists and psychoanalysts, 
everyone wrestling with this very similar question, but in some very different ways. So fortunately for you, what I'm going to do is in this episode is just definitively answer this question once and for all, and then we won't have to keep talking about it. Yeah. Nah. But what I do want to, that's a real Kiwi, if you're not from New Zealand, by the way, yeah, yeah, nah, it's like a, that's a, that's a real Kiwi thing. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to answer the question for us. But what I do want to do is look at some of the ways that this is conceived of within certain streams of the Christian church and then think about the implications of it for how we think about ourselves. Now, some of you might not be familiar with this framework at all, but one of the common Christian answers to the question about what a human being is is that a human being is made up of a body, a soul, and a spirit. This way of thinking about the human being is taken from a particular reading of just a couple of biblical texts. And it can be called sometimes a tripartite view of the human person or trichotomous. The the term doesn't really matter. Really, it just means three parts. And it has its origins with some of the church fathers uh, and continues to be the predominant view, particularly in in more recent times among evangelical and Pentecostal movements. So in this structure, this way of thinking about the human being, we are body, soul, and spirit. and, And the way we try and break this down, or the way that I was taught to try and break this down, is that your body is the physical body, the embodied self, the flesh and blood. But then you have your soul, and your soul refers to your mind, your will, and your emotions. But then the most true part of you is the spirit. This is the eternal part of you, the immortal part of you, and the part that connects to and relates with God. So you sometimes hear within certain streams of Christianity, that we live eternally as a spirit, we have a soul, and we dwell in a body. So really, the body is is just something we inhabit or we live inside. Uh, with the soul, that's the mind, will, and the emotions, and then the real part of you, the truest part of you, which is the spirit. Now, more contemporary evangelical and Pentecostal streams, it's taken a particular kind of emphasis, and I should probably lay my cards on the table to begin with, that I don't think it's a particularly helpful or accurate way to talk about what makes us a human. But having said that, at its best, I think what it is is an attempt to try and describe the different components or the different facets of what make a human up. But at its worst, this body-soul-spirit construct serves to create division within oneself and often inevitably turns into a hierarchy of values and importance that usually diminishes the physical body, creates this culture of constraint and restraint where you're seeking to control yourself rather than to trust yourself. So let's talk a little bit about how this is used. Essentially, what some Christian teachers would say is that if the spirit is the part of us that connects to God, then this is the most real us. And it's this kind of intangible, non-physical, spiritual reality that is immortal and endures forever. Some suggest that the spirit is essentially dormant, or even some will say it's dead, until one becomes a Christian. And then the spirit comes alive when you are born again. Born again. I feel like I should say that in a North American accent, but anyway. uh, This phrase of born again or regeneration or whatever term might be preferred, is then referring to this idea that this spirit that is within you then somehow comes alive when we turn, when we convert to Christianity. Now that's what happens to the spirit, but the soul, the realm of the mind, the will and the emotions, then becomes something that's apparently not yet fully converted or fully saved. And so the realm of the mind and the will and the emotions has to undergo this process of alignment to the spirit. 
And so learning how to train the mind and to control the emotions and to essentially refuse your own will and desire all becomes integral to being a good Christian. And so your soul, your mind, will and emotions in this particular framework has to in some way come in submission or under your spirit and then the body is something that needs to come then under your soul which is under your spirit. And so you have this hierarchy of value, of purity, of whatever language you might want to give that. Something that is essentially, you know, your body and your soul to some degree is something that's essentially in opposition to your spirit that has now been born again. And so it's something that needs to be controlled, restrained, managed, judged, brought into line. You see this pushed to its extreme in some of the faith and prosperity movements. And I don't know if you're familiar with these at all, but if you watch any Christian television for more than about 30 seconds, then you'll bump into this a little bit. The faith and prosperity movements are these movements that, in some respects, probably originated in North America, but also find they're, they're are sort of emerging all, all around the world, really, in this effort to try and portray the Christian message and the Christian gospel as being this key to some kind of life of prosperity, maybe of healing, of accomplishing and achieving all that you want and desire. Um, they often talk about living, and these faith and prosperity movements, they often talk about living, about living by your spirit man, which, aside from being a gender-exclusive term, which is a bit weird because I've seen women preachers get up and talk about living by your spirit man, uh, which I always thought was a bit strange. But it's a, it's a way of trying to talk or of, of talking about trying to live out of this place that we call the spirit, uh, which usually then involves denying the desires, choices, opinions, emotions, feelings, physical embodiment that we find apparently in the soul and the body. And so if you think about a faith healer, for example, within the Christian tradition, then they challenge people to ignore the fact and look to the truth because your spirit already knows the truth that you are healed. It's just that your body and mind need to come into alignment and so this in some way becomes the key to living in victory, which you'll hear a lot in contemporary faith preaching and prosperity preaching and evangelical and Pentecostal preaching. So you see a lot of really popular books and podcasts and preachers in the world at the moment talking about living your best life now, your best now now, living in victory, living in triumph, living, claiming your victory, whatever it might be. Uh, you just have to look at the top-ranked podcasts in the world um, in, in Christianity and so many of them are about this. And I guess maybe because it sounds pretty inspiring and, and I mean, the cynical part of me says um, that really it's a, it's a baptised capitalism, you know, um, and consumerism and kind of Western mod modern project. Uh, but, you know, I guess it's encouraging and inspiring to think that maybe we can live in victory and everything will be great once we finally get our body and our soul in alignment with our spirit. So when you dive into all of this language and victory and best life now and all that kind of stuff, you find a lot of this kind of talk of submitting your body and soul to your spirit. And so the idea of living in victory actually includes in some way victory over your own body and soul. So think about this quote. This is our Gloria Copeland. Uh, so Gloria and Kenneth Copeland are the, kind of two of the real big-time faith preachers in the U.S., and she says, spiritual growth is determined by how much your soul has been changed by the word of God. Nothing is wrong with your spirit if you are born again. The life of God is in there. You are indwelt by the Holy Ghost. But you are hindered from living a spiritual life by a soul, brackets mind, that thinks like the world instead of like God. This is true because your will determines your actions. Your body is just your earth suit. 
So there's a few things in there, and and again, perhaps the Copelands are on the edge of the extreme of the kind of faith and prosperity movement. But actually, you see this kind of idea present, even if not quite so explicitly, uh, very much within kind of mainstream evangelical Pentecostal charismatic Christianity. So why am I saying all of this? Well, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, when we live in this space of seeing our emotions, our desires, and our bodies as inherently untrustworthy and rebellious, then I think we really easily develop quite unhealthy attitudes toward our own embodiment. And I know this, I guess, from personal experience, and hopefully by episode 20, you're not sick of me talking about my life. Uh, (laughs) I lived in this place for years, you know, of trying to get my mind and body to line up with this elusive life of victory and truth that I was supposed to attain to. And one of the consequences of this was, in the end, a complete shutdown of my emotional self. Um, I was trained to see my emotions as as the enemy, especially negative ones. So whenever I'd feel sad or angry or down or frustrated or whatever it might be, I'd go through this horrendous internal wrestle of trying to fix myself or imploring with God to fix me, trying to get it out of my system. Uh, And... You know, I was often encouraged by others and by preachers and by pastors to combat all of these feelings that were emerging by submitting them to some kind of external abstract truth that I was supposed to be living by. And this was a big thing for me. I was kind of a, a creator. I was studying science when I was, you know, when I left school. But I was also a creative musician and a bit of a melancholic personality. And so I had these ups and downs all over the place. And so I saw this as a real problem. You know, this was me being a bad Christian because clearly my body and soul weren't in alignment with my spirit man. Um, And so, you know, I would try and kind of get all of these things under control. They were the enemy to me and to my journey of faith. And initially, I wasn't very successful at this, and so I'd go into these major slumps, and then I'd, you know, inevitably feel terrible about the fact that I couldn't control my emotions, which would make them worse. But then after a while, I actually became quite good at it. I learned to ignore my own emotions over time, and eventually they died down. They stabilized, and I was like, yes, I've grown up, I've matured, I've become a better Christian. I've become someone who's learned how to control this part of myself that was out of control. And now my own emotion my emotions only came out in subtle ways, you know, like compulsive eating behaviors or occasional spirals of shame. But other than that, man, I was I was all over it. <laughs> and I was sitting in therapy a number of years later and suddenly dawned on me that I was, you know, I could see the ways in which this in fact had deeply damaged me. I was wondering, I was processing in therapy why I struggled to be genuinely empathetic towards others when they were in the midst of crisis. Not because I didn't care, because I really did care about people, but when they were in the midst of suffering or crisis, I couldn't feel it. So I could care on a logical level about people, but I couldn't feel it because I'd learned to shut down all of that stuff. And then I found that I was doing the same for myself, that when I had moments of stress or crisis or difficulty, I didn't feel anything. And so I've had to go on this process of unpacking and unfolding myself, which I'm still on the path of, of figuring out how to unpack and stir up these emotions again. Because what I've realized is that in shutting down that part of myself, I shut down all sorts of healthy ways to pay attention to what's actually going on in me and in others. That my emotional self is there for a reason to give me cues and to give other people cues as to what's happening for me. 
If I'm angry and I feel that, then I'm able to ask why. But if, I, if I'm angry and I've learned to suppress that feeling, then I'm actually not able to ask why because I've pushed it down and that means it's inevitably going to come up in some ways that are really destructive or at least really difficult to manage down the line. And then given the social nature of emotions, you know, because one of the reasons we externally manifest our emotions is because it's actually helpful for others to know when we're sad or down or upset or happy. There's a social function at play here. That's why our tears come out. That's why we cry, because it's supposed to be a social cue that we need support. And when we suppress all of that, you don't actually get the support and connection that you need, and then you feel more isolated and like nobody sees you. And so seeing the realm of our emotions as inherently out of control and sinful, well, we're actually damaging our ability to navigate the world in healthy ways. I remember when I was uh, talking with my therapist about a particular experience that we'd had that was really challenging and really difficult. And we had a really good friend who had become really sick and ended up with a terminal diagnosis. And this was really hard for for her and for her family and her partner and for us. And I was a support person for them as they were making decisions in their journey and in particular as they were making decisions about the best course of treatment for how they were going to try and navigate their way through this. And there was someone who, who I didn't know particularly well but who really disagreed with their decisions and thought they should take another path and sort of ended up having this unexpected conversation that took me a bit by surprise. And in that conversation... You know, they essentially said in, in expressing their disagreement that if a friend ended up dying, that they held me responsible for that. And, you know, I guess that's maybe that's one of the worst things you can say to someone, or it certainly felt like that. And yet, my response, because I was so used to bringing myself into check and to controlling my emotional world, was just simply to say, oh, thank you for your honest feedback, and then walk away. But then after I walked away, as I was walking away, I suddenly felt nauseous and I began to shake a little and my legs began to feel weak because, in fact, what I was doing was I was absorbing all of that difficulty and not allowing any real emotion to come to the surface in the moment. And so instead of being someone who could respond to that in healthy ways, I was someone who was suppressing all of that and shutting it down. And so my therapist, you know, who is a lovely sort of older, quiet Christian woman, <laughs> she, she said to me, so in that situation, now that you can reflect on it, what would you like to be able to say to that person? And, you know, kind of bursting out of me in this almost irrepressible way was in, in response to her question, which was asked in a very lovely fashion, was just this response. And I said, what I would have liked to have said was, fuck you, you piece of shit. And uh, she's like, oh, hmm. And, um, and what I realised in that moment, because this kind of just burst out of me, and excuse my language if that's upsetting to you, I apologise, but uh, what, what it shows is that in, in that sense, in that moment, um, I was aware suddenly of how much emotion was sitting beneath the surface that I had managed to suppress and absorb and shut down 
and that in fact this was a pattern of living that I'd gotten used to. And what this meant was that I was going through life and simply unable to react and respond in genuine and authentic and healthy ways and instead just become this kind of blank board against which people could throw all sorts of things and I would never react because I was in control. And so seeing this realm of our emotions is inherently sinful well, it damages our ability to actually know what's going on for us. And then we extend that out to the way that we think even more so about just our desires in general. What it is that we need and want from life and from ourselves and from others and even from God. And the way we cultivate maybe this life of constraint and restraint means that we miss so much of what's going on for us. And then we extend this even further to the way that we view our body itself and then the body becomes the site of struggle to control ourselves. And again, what usually happens on all of this effort to suppress and to constrain comes bursting out in manifestly unhealthy ways. So all of this to say that viewing ourselves as three distinct parts, body, soul and spirit, with this preference for the spirit as the real you, can end up leading to some really destructive patterns of life. And here's the thing. It's not what's going on in the biblical text from which the Christian tradition draws its ideas. And nor is it what science tells us is going on. So my suggestion is that we toss it out as a way of thinking about ourselves. Now, you might have never come across it before, in which case, you're a step ahead. Well done. Congratulations. But for those who might have inherited this way of seeing what it means to be human, I want to liberate you from that construct. You know, I often talk about this in, cl in class with theology students, and they inevitably come into the classroom, given the traditions that they come from, and they come into their study believing that new humans are a body, soul, and spirit. And so if I ask, what's a human being, they will inevitably say, a human is a body, soul, and spirit. And I'll say, well, what is the body and soul and spirit? And they'll say, well, your body is your physical body and soul is the mind with the emotions and the spirit's the part of you that relates to God. It's an incredibly consistent idea, especially in the kind of Pentecostal, charismatic, evangelical churches that my students come from, especially given that that's not anywhere explicitly in the biblical text. But it's a very consistent uh, theological motif that has spread like wildfire. So then what I do is often say, well, okay, if the spirit's the part of you that relates to God, how do you relate to God? And they say, oh, well, you know, you pray. And I say, okay, you pray. How do you pray? And they say, well, you know, you pray. And, and then I push them a little more and then you realize, oh, I, I pray. Well, I think thoughts. I say, where do you think thoughts? Well, in my mind. And Do you ever, do you ever say your prayers out loud? Yeah, how do you say your prayers? With, with my mouth. And then I ask, well, okay, if your soul is your mind, will, and your emotions, how do you actually process emotion? How does your body feel something? And then they realize, well, actually, that's kind of coded for in the brain. And so and then all of these distinctions begin to break down very quickly, and they realize, and we all realize together, that these divisions between body and soul and spirit don't really exist. And so one of the things I want to highlight that's in the biblical text sacred text of the Christian faith is that there's actually not an attempt to separate us into distinct parts, but there's actually a desire to talk about us as whole and holistic beings. Even when the original authors of these texts use the terms all at once, which, which they do on one or two occasions where they talk about our spirit, soul, and body, well, what they're doing is they're using it as a way to talk about our whole selves, not as a way of ranking distinct parts of ourselves and trying to separate them out from one another. 
So when Jesus says even to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, well, he's not saying, look, there are four parts of you, your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. Now, the heart is obviously the most important part. And then, you know, that's not what he's doing. The point's not to divide ourselves into four parts and then rank them. The point is to love God with our whole selves. That's the point. That's what he's trying to say. In the Old Testament text, which is largely written in Hebrew, the word for spirit is ruach, and the word for soul is nefesh. And they actually have considerable overlap and meaning. Sometimes they're used quite interchangeably. They're never used in relation to two different distinct things. And generally, they're both just used to refer to the life principle of God within a living creature. So in the ancient world, in particular ancient Israel, they understood human beings to be this unique creature because they have this kind of life principle within them, the spirit or the soul, the ruach or the nefesh. And so when they use those terms, they're not trying to talk about the real you at some point. They're just trying to talk about what makes a human being unique, this unique kind of creature. In the New Testament, the word for soul is psyche. And for spirit is pneuma. And again, they overlap. And in this case, they're usually used to refer to the whole person. So when you talk about a soul, you're talking about a whole person, not a particular part of that person. So there's not this idea of distinct bits being referred to here, but just different ways of talking about the whole self, including every aspect of who we are. And the whole self is me. I am all of me. I don't try to figure out which bits of me are more me than other bits. I am me. I don't try and think about some parts of me as rebelling against other parts of me. I'm an embodied creature trying to figure out how to live in healthy ways. This is an integrated conversation because I'm an integrated human. Now, do I find myself having to work through challenges and difficult emotions and complicated ways of seeing my own body and all sorts of stuff? Well, yeah, of course. But this is not about trying to bring my body and soul under control or into submission. It's about learning how to flourish as a human being. About learning what it is to cultivate meaning and virtue and beauty and learning what it is to love myself and others. Which means I actually have to challenge the ways that I tend to split myself up. I have to challenge the ways that I tend to view myself as having more real parts and less real parts or more true parts and less true parts or more preferable and less preferable. To challenge the part of myself that wants to sit in judgment on my own emotional self. Or challenge the part of myself that wants to judge my own body and its peculiarities and the fact that my legs, for some reason, are too short for my torso. Actually, I have to see that this is all a part of who I am. Now, in some sense, even the language of self, of soul, of spirit, whatever language we use to refer to our whole selves, what we're trying to do is articulate this immaterial or intangible kind of reality in the human experience. And we do want to pay attention to this. It's something we haven't really figured out. Not yet, anyway. And whether we're in philosophy or theology or poetry and science, I guess we're all asking the question, what is this uniquely human experience? Maybe we could put it this way. What is this human consciousness that makes us so self-aware? And, well, I guess I can't answer that question definitively. But in many respects, we can say that consciousness itself is an embodied reality. Right? Our mind is made up of millions and billions of neurons and neural pathways 
sort of all work together in a somewhat mysterious fashion. We don't quite know how consciousness emerges from that. But what we do recognise now is that it's not even just about the neurons that sit in the brain, but that in fact there are all sorts of feedback loops going through the, through the entire body that contribute to this self that I call me. And so in some sense, the self, the me, the Michael Frost in this case, that emerges is greater than the sum of its parts. And so in that way, my consciousness does remain somewhat of a mystery. It emerges as some kind of accumulation of neural pathways and embodied reality and thoughts and emotions and neurotransmitters being fired across synapses. And all of this comes together and the conscious self emerges as the culmination of all of this. It's a beautiful, actually, and mysterious thing. And no wonder it's fascinated poets and philosophers and scientists alike. And perhaps when we use the language of the soul, this is some of what we're trying to get at. This human self that can relate and feel and express and understand and imagine and believe and foster love and kindness, but also rage and grief, well, it's a glorious and beautiful thing. And my hope is that if we can can engage spirituality with this in mind, then perhaps our spiritual life, so to speak, which I guess is a a big thing often in Christianity and religion in general. Well, this isn't just about prayer times or church meetings or religious institutions, because that kind of thing flows out of the dualistic way of thinking, you know, that sees our spiritual life as having to do with just the spirit that relates to God. But actually, when we see ourselves as these mysteriously integrated beings, well, our spiritual life can be about recognizing how deeply wonderful and mysterious the human experience truly is. And that if we do want to engage with God or with the divine, however you want to refer to this ultimate reality, the sense of connectedness, that we can do so as whole and integrated human beings. And wherever we find ourselves, we're invited to see this mystery, to enter into it. This is spirituality for me, to cultivate a way of life in which we and others are able to flourish and to be connected to one another and treat one another with care and compassion and kindness and to pay attention to our own bodies and our own emotions and our own selves. And maybe that'll allow us to pay attention to that and others also. And perhaps this is some of what the ancients were getting at when they spoke of human beings as the image of God. That everywhere we go, we find something beautiful and mysterious embedded in the life of every human creature. Now, is it true that this can go off course? Can we descend into violence and oppression and injustice? Yes, of course. But the answer to this is not the suppression of the embodied self. It's not to split ourselves even further. Instead, perhaps the answer is in seeing our entire selves as having deep and profound meaning which means we have to pay attention to all of this. And if we can pay attention, then perhaps we can recognise when anger comes to the surface and ask why and ask what's going on. And we can recognise when jealousy and rage pop up and we can begin to allow these parts of ourselves to receive attention and maybe even healing. And maybe that'll help us stop spiralling in to yet another cycle of violence and injustice. So in this way, Perhaps a vision of the integrated self, this mysterious but grounded and embodied reality. Perhaps this is an invitation into a kind of spirituality that helps us to flourish. So, that's all for this episode of In the Shift. 
We're going to be continuing it in the Flesh series next time. Thanks again to Reese and Michelle for massaging the sound quality and helping me sound listenable. Thanks for tuning in, for listening along. Send me your questions, get in touch, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email, website, intheshift.com, however you want to do it. I'd love to hear from you. I'll be back on the next episode. See you then.